Are you that weirdo who enjoys a good diamond heist? Well, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Happy Hour Gets Weird. Hello, everyone. Hi, welcome, welcome. I'm Cassie. And I'm Tiffany. And this is Happy Hour Gets Weird. We get together once a week, have cocktails, and talk about all the weird stuff that you love. Yes, absolutely. And what are you drinking this week? I am drinking a twist on a salty dog. Oh. I'm going to call it a fuzzy poodle. I love it. Or a salty poodle. Salty poodle. I love it. And it just so happens poodle might in line with your story. Wee wee. Yes. Okay. (laughs) And I am having a... Blood orange, cinnamon margarita. Sounds wild and crazy. It actually is delicious. Blood oranges are on their way out. Season ends in May, so I figured I'd take advantage. And um, who doesn't love cinnamon? So and, bl- and oranges and cinnamon go together well. They're a pairing. They're a pairing, and they're delicious. So as usual, our recipes and pictures for our cocktails this week will be on our Instagram and Twitter account. So check that out if you're interested. And... Uh, Let's get straight away into it. Sounds good, because we have two amazing stories for this week. Yes, we do. So we have decided to cover another true crime genre. Is that how you say it? But we are not dealing with murder. We decided to go in another direction, and we are covering heists. I'm so excited. I love when we do true crime episodes that aren't super sad downer episodes. Yeah, the less dead people, the better. That's pretty much my rule. (laughs) Same here. So, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. This was such a fun uh, episode to research, and I'm obsessed. I just want to put out there that stealing is wrong, but I might or might not consider maybe possibly pulling off a diamond heist. Can I join you? Of course. Then I fully support your decision. Okay. All right. And with that, let's get into it. Okay. So I love going into a story and knowing nothing about it and starting with the oldest articles that I can find. By researching in this way, I feel like the story kind of unfolds in front of me the same Mm -hmm. way that it would have at the time that the crime actually happened. I didn't know much about this. And when I started researching, I was like, holy shit, this is such a cool story. So before I get into it, I'm going to cite my sources. The first real article that I read on this topic was from the New York Times, an article titled The Heist of the Century by Robert Daly, published 1976. Another source was a BBC article, French gangster Jacques Cassandre on trial for 1976 heist of the century. And I also read an article from New Straits Times, French gangster cleared over heist of the century, written in 2018. And I also, of course, used Wikipedia for a little bit of it. So this crime was called the heist of the century. Mm -hmm. You mean lay heist of the century. (laughs) In 1976, the Monday preceding the long Bastille Day weekend, bankers at the Société Générale, was that good? 
mm-hmm. bank in Nice, France, could not open the vault. They had had issues with the vault malfunctioning before and sticking. So not initially too panicked, they called for repairmen. Specialists who worked on these vaulted doors were called, but the door would not budge. Finally, a decision was made to bust through one of the sidewalls with a jackhammer. Then they could repair whatever was wrong with the vault door from the inside. Mm-hmm. By 3 o'clock, a sizable hole was made. Workmen looked in the hole and immediately called the police. The inside of the vault was a scene straight out of a heist movie. Oh, I like it. Okay. The floor was littered with hundreds of papers, bank documents, wills, all of that kind of stuff. The safe doors hung open wide. Large, muddied tools had been left behind. Jackhammers, crowbars, chisels, drills, blowtorches. The smallest of all of the several detectives that had arrived on scene was chosen to squeeze through the hole they had created and check the large vault to make sure that the thieves had in fact left. The vault had um, three corridors or chambers, so someone could have possibly been hiding. Mm -hmm. Although he was the smallest, the detective still had to remove his pants to slide through. And he was forever known as Le Cheeks. good he later commented i'm a grower not a shower (laughs) i had no idea that was a french saying no he didn't say that (laughs) i wish he would have i wish he would have uh no he later commented it was hard to feel brave with no pants on (laughs) i believe it i mean yeah but like your most vulnerable (laughs) state you're like hands up and the robber and the bank heist uh, Robert is like, uh, excuse me, officer, is that your penis? I cannot <laughs> take you seriously with your bows. Uh, <laughs> However, by the time the vault was opened, the thieves were long gone. Thank goodness for that no pants detective. <laughs> it was determined that the robbers had stolen around $35 million in cash, gold bars, securities, and jewels. 320 safe deposit boxes had been broken into. The numbers differ. I read between 30 and 100 million francs. I read 35 million francs. The original article said 10 million, but that was the 1976 article. So I'm assuming things have been updated to reflect that amount for, you know, this time. Mm -hmm. Today's money, all that. So before I get into the aftermath of who did it, let's get into how they did it. Okay. This is what fascinates me most about heist is how the how I don't, I don't care about the who I don't care about the why it's the how that's so fascinating. It's like the ultimate puzzle. I agree. This heist was very thoughtful. Realizing that the bank was located very close to the sewer system. The thieves used the sewers and tunneled from there into the bank vault. The bank didn't even have an alarm system because it was thought to be impenetrable because of the thickness of the walls and the vault door itself. The thieves wired an electrical wire from the middle of town and ran it half a mile through the sewer to use once inside the vault, and I'm assuming for some of their tools. The larger tools were taken in a truck via a service road along the underground uh, Pellon River, where they were then put on a raft and floated through the sewer to their needed location. They also had, along with this electrical wire, they also had 
a apparatus to help them pump uh, fresh air into their tunnels. Oh, cool. Once the thieves reached the bank, they jackhammered through and carefully moved a huge armoire they didn't realize would be covering their entrance point. They Mm. had to kind of carefully push this huge piece of furniture out of their way. From the outside. Yes. And only oh the French gosh. would have an armoire in the middle of their bank vaults. So fancy. Seriously. Right, elegant. Seriously. Elegant. Very, I mean, if there's anything cooler than a French person, please let me know. Because in my opinion, nothing cooler than a French person. Agreed. Once inside, the men tack welded the vault door shut and cocked all the seams and vents to the outside. Oh. Then they made some food, drank some wine, and went to work. Oh, okay. Exhibit A. French people are fucking <laughs> cool, man. Uh, so I have a quick question. Do you know why they closed the vents? Is it for noise? It was for noise, but also because they cooked. They they cooked food oh, in so there. The and smell. they did it. Also both. Yes. So both. Okay. Okay. Pure G- yes. genius. It's very thoughtful. Mm-hmm. They stayed the entire long weekend <laughs> in the vault. Oh, my God. Usually robbers are like in and out. We have two minutes tops. These guys are like, you know what? We're basically going to be camping here. Don't forget the wine. We need it. Bold. Yeah. They stayed so long that they even ended up using some found silver antiques to relieve themselves in. Oh, could you imagine? Oh my gosh. No. Oh my God. If only I could take a dump in a French (laughs) silver antique. Like it's nothing. I swear. So cool. So fucking cool, man. I never knew that I needed to add that to my bucket list until now. Literal. (laughs) Once the thieves had gone through everything, they loaded it up and left the same way that they came. So the police system in France is way different than in the U.S., obviously. They have different types of units and departments, and we don't really need to get into that aspect of the story, mainly because I'll probably fuck it up. Mm -hmm. But... The important thing to know is that this was a huge heist and it was all hands on deck. Over 900 detectives worked this case. One of the major breaks in this story is actually a lucky one. A detective named Boschetti was going over the tools left behind during the heist. When one of them caught his eye, it was a red chisel. Mm. Bizarrely enough, he had pulled over a car two days before the heist by a known low-level French criminal named Michelucci. And in the trunk, this criminal had the same chisels. And this is why it's amazing to have everyone working together. Because what if this detective wasn't working the case because it wasn't his jurisdiction or something? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which happens a lot here. We have something happen in one jurisdiction, police in another jurisdiction, and the evidence, the knowledge, whatever, it's not going to link up. Mm-hmm. So it was really lucky that all of the detectives in France were working on this mm-hmm. because it just so happened that one of the detectives already knew something, right? Right. Like if, if it was, they had one body of, uh, like one body come in and take over because it was, at least in America, I know that federal crimes are 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 investigated by different bodies. Mm-hmm. So like, say if they had a, a federal crime, if they had a federal body like the FBI come in he had never seen this tool. I mean, he, mm-hmm. it, that wouldn't have happened. So I think it's amazing. They all banded together and were like, we're going to figure this out. Because of the routine stop that Bachetti had made, 
a low-level gang of petty criminals was on the police's radar. Mm -hmm. The police knew, however, that these knuckleheads could not be the masterminds behind this professional robbery. Mm -hmm. The police surveilled the men, put up some wiretaps, and on the 100th day of the investigation, they hauled in 27 suspects and their known associates. A few days later, they found Michalucci, which was the man that had been driving the car with the chisels. Mm-hmm. He had 85,000 francs on him, as well as a few of the gold bars. Okay, not guilty at all. <laughs> I always travel with gold bars. What are you talking about? Uh, always. The police still knew that they didn't have the leader of this gang, the actual head of the operation. Mm-hmm. Basically, they thought there was no way these jackasses could conceive of and execute such a flawless heist. Mm-hmm. Also, where was all of the money and the gold and the jewels? Mm-hmm. Like $85,000 out of $10 million is nothing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. They still needed what they were referring to as the brain of the heist. Then came a tip, and that's all I know. They got a tip. I'm not sure where that tip came from just a tip so secretive albert spagari or bert which is what i'm going to call him Mm -hmm. that was his nickname was taken into custody in 1976 he was a photographer who owned a studio his wife was a nurse they had no children they owned a beautiful home in the country where they had a large property with a garden and chickens he was known as a man so gentle he couldn't even kill his own chickens for dinner the butcher had to do it Most recently, he had been accompanying the mayor of Nice in the Far East as a photographer. When he was a young man, his life was full of misadventure. Same. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At 19, he joined the paratroopers and fought in the French War in Indochina. While in the army, he and some friends robbed someone, and he spent four years in jail. In 1958, he went to Africa and ended up joining the right-wing secret army. He spent another three years in prison for political terrorism. These tumultuous years had made him many political connections, good or bad, and made the police even more suspicious. Mm, Okay. Bert ended up in France and had been living a normal, peaceful life ever since. Bert was pretty unfazed when the questioning began. He was kind of cool as a cucumber. Right. He basically said, I'm a married, middle-aged man. He was 44 at the time. I'm a photographer. I just live a normal life. You definitely have made a mistake. You have the wrong guy. But after 36 hours of interrogations, Bert finally cracked. Okay. Well, 36 hours would break even the most innocent of photographers. He admitted to being the head of the heist. He also admitted that he needed money to buy the tools necessary for such a big job. So he went to the mob and they backed him and provided him with half of his crew. The police went over the crime and Bert provided details only someone who was there could have known. Like about caulking the vents and things like that. He also Mm -hmm. talked about how he spent six days going through the, um, the sewers to try to find the right location to start tunneling from. And they they talked about how it was so incredibly dangerous because unlike the sewers in Paris, which are well lit mm-hmm. and like easily, you can easily walk through the, the sewers in Paris. In Nice, 
the sewers are not lit and some parts of them are so small that you have to actually crawl through them. And if there would have been a, a heavy rainfall or even if too many people flush their toilets at the same time, Bert could have drowned. Okay. Not to mention the um, E. coli uh, <laughs> outbreak that would have started amongst these criminals. So because of the details that Bert provided, the police believed his confession. Bert also claimed that he gave his share of the money to Katina, a right-wing political organization that might have been completely made up by Bert. There was a note saying that they hadn't found evidence of this actual right-wing group. He might have just been pulling that one out of his ass. Mm -hmm. So the police accepted his confession and the trial began. Bert had a special piece of evidence included on his behalf. Unfortunately, the evidence had to be decoded. Mm -hmm. So the judge took the paper and poured over it, trying to make sense of this new evidence. While the judge was distracted, Bert jumped out of the courthouse window. <laughs> no shit. He landed in a parked car and fled on a motorcycle that had been awaiting him. No fucking way. It's very dramatic. Can't oh even God. imagine. So he entered this evidence specifically to distract the judge and everybody in the courtroom, focus on the judge trying to decode this thing, and he jumped out the fucking window? Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. Whoa. Okay. It's like a movie. And it was later said that the owner of the car that Bert had smashed during his escape was reimbursed for his troubles by an anonymous source. Oh. Yeah. Bert spent the rest of his life in hiding. Oh. <gasps> He what? was sent yeah, he was sentenced in absentia to life imprisonment. Which usually they can't sentence you to a crime without you being there, but if okay. you are fleeing, then you're sentenced in absence. Some say that Bert had plastic surgery. Uh-huh. Which reminds me of Dillinger. John Dillinger. Mm -hmm. yeah. Others claim that his political connections made it easy for him to hide out. Okay. He died in 1989 of lung cancer, and his body was taken back to France for his mother. Only a very small fraction of the money from the heist was ever recovered. In 2010, a book came out written under a pen name claiming responsibility as the real mastermind behind the heist. Jacques Cassandre, a well-known figure in France's criminal underworld, a.k.a. the mob that Albert claimed helped him, right, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. was the author of the book. A statute of limitations was up for the actual robbery aspect of the crime, but not for laundering the money involved. Mm -hmm. So the French government took it to trial. However, it was deemed that a novel could not be used as evidence. And although Cassandre took credit and claimed he was the real mastermind behind the entire operations in his book, in real life he said, oh, that's just a story. The charges were dropped, and he was found guilty of a few minor charges uh, dealing with his business, and he only spent 30 months in jail. I am actually happy that Kasandi, this man who lived a life of crime that included his wife and children, didn't take the spotlight from Albert Spaghetti. Something about Bert just makes me root for him. Mm -hmm. Even though I know he's a thief, <laughs> and I know he's probably not the best guy around, I just still kind of like him. I can't help it. I think I like him because when I was doing this research, they told about him being escorted from the police station. And uh, one of the reporters called out, any regrets, Bert? 
And he was walking out wearing this really loud plaid sports coat with a huge cigar dangling from his mouth. And he just smiled and said, I regret nothing. (laughs) And I just loved that story. (laughs) I just, I don't know. I, I, it doesn't really matter, I guess, in the end, who was the mastermind of this crime. Mm -hmm. I I'm going to go with Bert, but either way it happened. And the bulk of the money was never recovered. Mm -hmm. I wanted to end this heist story back at the beginning with my favorite part. As the police were walking through the looted vault, evaluating all of the chaos around them, they found a note from the bank robbers scrawled on the wall. A large peace sign and next to it a message. Without weapons, without violence, without hate. And that is the story of the heist of the century. I love it. And you know what? This, you know, I think why people find heists so interesting, it's, it, it just has to do with classism. And I feel like the idea of someone like a bad boy meets Robin Hood stealing from the rich is just so sexy and getting away from with it makes it even sexier. And I just, that might be unpopular opinion, but I mean, I just, it's heists are sexy, man. And that's because we're not part of the 1%. I'm sure the 1% is like, heists are stupid. (laughs) But yeah, And also they did it in a way where they, there was no way that somebody was going to get hurt. They Mm -hmm. did it in a way to avoid harming anybody. There was nobody there. Mm -hmm. So nobody was even traumatized by this event, except for maybe no pants detective. (laughs) <laughs> he might have scraped something uh, uh, but I mean hopefully he didn't that was a wonderful story you know I'm obsessed with French people mm-hmm. and even now even more obsessed with French thieves masterminds of heists yeah that was a great story I feel like okay yes maybe some of those lock boxes contained you know heirlooms from you know generations and generations but they actually took things that could not be um traced okay so they didn't take stuff like that they took like loose jewels okay things like that there was a pile of pearl necklaces left behind okay all right little necklace joke here i i I like them (laughs) even more (laughs) hey it was a long weekend okay (laughs) well I think it's funny that you call yours the heist of the century because mine was also called the heist of the century. So we have dueling heists here. (laughs) More than 100 million in loose diamonds, gold, and jewelry, jewelry were stolen. And this is the heist that movies are made of. Are you ready for this? I'm already applauding. You better hold your socks because they're going to be blown off. (laughs) That's why I don't even wear socks when I'm with you. (laughs) That's not the first time I've been told that. 2003, Belgium. This story begins with an Italian man in his early 50s by the name of Leonardo Notabartolo and his four accomplices known only by their nicknames. The Monster... The Genius, The King of Keys, and Speedy. The monster specialized in lockpicking, 
mechanics, electronics, and had monstrous physical strength, hence the nickname. The genius specialized in alarm systems. The king of keys specialized in picking locks and is said to be one of the best key forgers in the entire world. And Speedy was a childhood friend who had been no to Bartolo's partner in crime for 30 plus years. In 2000, Nort de Bartolo rented a small sales office in the Antwerp World Diamond Center, which is located inside three-block radius known as the Antwerp Diamond District. In 2003, $3 billion in diamond sales took place in this three-block radius, and 80% of the world's rough diamonds pass through this small area annually. Nort de Bartolo wasn't a diamond dealer. On the contrary, he was a diamond thief. And his sole purpose for renting this office was to ingrain himself within the building and the diamond dealer community. Renting an office space in this building gave Nota Bartolo 24-hour access to the building along with a key card. And it also gave him a safe deposit box in the vault two stories below the ground, which he could come and go as he pleased. Outside cameras weren't allowed in the vault, but 18 months before the crime took place, Nota Bartolo stashed a pen in his suit front pocket, but it wasn't just any pen. It had a camera in this pen. And using the pen footage, an exact model of the vault was built somewhere off site. And for the next 18 months, the five men practiced the heist until they felt it could be executed to perfection. Now let's talk about this vault. It had 10 layers of security. The Antwerp Diamond Center was so confident in this vault that they didn't even arm it with guards. So outside the vault, there was a combination lock that had one million possible combos, then a keypad lock and a built-in seismic sensor. Behind the four-foot steel door was a locked steel grate and a magnetic sensor and also an external security camera. Inside the vault, there was a keypad for disarming the sensors. There was a light sensor, a heat and motion sensor, and also an internal security camera. How At, did they get in here? Seriously, it's an art form. It <laughs> oh is a, an art form. It, it's so fascinating. It's, it's, it's wild and crazy. At some point before the robbery, no, no to Bartolo placed a camera on the ceiling in front of the vault door, which is called an antechamber. The room in front of the vault mm -hmm. is called an antechamber. Mm -hmm. So he placed a fingertip-sized camera on the <clears throat> ceiling. So what this camera did was capture mm. every time the guards opened the door, they were able, the big spinning, you mm -hmm. know, every time they opened that, it was able to capture the combination, thus disabling the first layer of defense. The day before the heist, Nota Bartolo went to fill his safety deposit box at the end of the day, just as he did every other day. But this time, he had a can of women's hairspray in his pocket. And I say to him, is that a can of hairspray in your pocket? Or are you just happy to see me? Both. <laughs> and with just a slight swivel of his wrist, he covered the heat sensor inside the vault with an oily layer of hairspray. And it was supposed to stop temperature changes in the vault from being detected. thus tripping the alarm. At midnight on February 15th, 2003, Nota Bartolo and his four accomplices parked a block and a half from the Antwerp Diamond Center and prepared for the heist of the century. 
Notabartolo, waiting in his car, sent the four other men to an old office building next to the Antwerp Diamond Center. The King of Keys picked the lock and the men went through the building and entered a shared garden. Using a ladder hidden earlier, the genius climbed to a second-story terrace to avoid a motion-activated heat sensor, he brought a homemade polyester shield, which hid his heat signature from the camera. The genius laid the shield over the sensor, and after he disabled the alarm on the balcony windows, the crew made their way inside the diamond center. Once inside the dark building, the crew covered the cameras with black plastic bags so they could turn the lights on. Once the lights were on, they used the combo from the surveillance video, and following a hunch... The King of Keys searched a janitor's closet to the right of the vault door, and in a disastrous security mistake, they found the one-of-a-kind key, which was a foot long, that was supposed to be impossible to forge, hidden in the closet. So what he noticed in their surveillance camera that they put on the ceiling is that every... So during the day, the guards would leave the door of the vault open. Mm-hmm. because diamond dealers would come down continuously to come get diamonds or put diamonds away. So they would leave it open and it was guarded at all times. Well, what they noticed in the morning time before they opened the vault is they would always go into this janitor's closet before they opened the vault. Mm-hmm. And the king of keys had a hunch that they actually hid the key there. And it turns out he was right. This is like the equivalent of putting your spare key under your doormat. Exactly. <laughs> At least get one of those fake rocks, people. We used to have one of those in high school. (laughs) In a move that impressed even Belgian police detectives, the genius custom-made two aluminum plates and using heavy double-sided tape stuck both plates to the bolts on the vault door, thus creating a magnetic field that would stay intact even if the door were opened. So there was a magnetic field security barrier, and when the door opened, it broke that field. So he created this ingenious plate system that like kind of moved the field away from the door so they were to open it and it wouldn't sound any alarms. Next, the men turned off the antechamber lights before opening the vault door because of the light sensor inside the vault. At this point, the only thing standing between them and the inside of the vault was a metal grate and the king of keys picked that lock in the dark. Oh my God. This is a hell of a crew. It's it's freaking crazy. Working from memory and under complete darkness, the monster moved to the middle of the inside of the vault. Lifting a ceiling panel, he rigged the inbound and outbound wires. An electric pulse shot through these wires. If any sensors were tripped, the circuit would sound the alarm. Once the wires were taken care of, they put small styrofoam boxes over the heat sensors and covered the light sensors with dark tape. But choosing not to take any risks, the men worked under complete darkness inside the vault, only flicking flashlights on for seconds at a time to position a drill over locked boxes. The King of Keys used a hand-cranked drill to open the lock boxes. One by one, they drilled open a box and emptied the contents into duffel bags, resisting the urge to turn on the lights and check their loop. By 5.30 a.m., they had successfully opened and emptied 109 boxes. It was time to go. On the way out, the men grabbed all the tapes from the security system so they could not be identified. They headed back the way they came to the office building next door, climbed down into the garden, and exited through the front door of the old building. The men stuffed the duffel bags into the back of the car, 
As Nortobartolo drove away to his apartment, the men planned to meet him there on foot. Once at the apartment, they raided their loot and celebrated pulling off the heist of the century. Or did they? Sunday evening, Nortobartolo and Speedy were on the way back to Italy and in the back seat of their car, they had a giant plastic bag stuffed to the brim with all the remaining evidence of the heist. Speedy was known for being nervous after a job, but he was full-on panicked this time. He demanded Notobartolo pull over and dispose the bag immediately instead of waiting until they were farther away from Belgium and the Antwerp Diamond Center. Notobartolo pulled off to what looked like a secluded strip of forest and began looking for a place to burn the contents of the bag. While he was doing this, Speedy was in the thralls of a panic attack and started throwing contents of the bag into the forest. Receipts were strewn about, small gems sunk into the mud, cash from all over the world scattered, and VHS film for the, from the security cameras were hanging in the branches like trees at Christmas with tinsel. Nota Bartolo told Speedy to get back in the car, but it was dark and picking up the garbage would take hours. Nota Bartolo made the decision to leave the trash thinking nobody would ever find it. Are you invested? <laughs> I'm invested, and I was already thinking during the actual heist, Speedy is not pulling his own weight. Thank God he hitched his sails to Nortobartolo. I can't say it. Thank God he had a friend that got him into this crew because Speedy kind of sucked already. But after hearing this part, I can't even stand Speedy. Okay, so it's funny you should mention that. This is like so, there were so many intricacies to the story I chose to left leave a lot of them out for time purposes, mm -hmm. but no to Bartolo vouched for speedy. So the other three guys were like, I don't know about this guy. He seems a little skittish. And he's like, no, he's good. He's good. Well, also speedy's job because they didn't get service in the vault was to run up the stairs every time they completed mm -hmm. a step and to call no to Bartolo. So, I mean, there's that, <laughs> but you're right. Speedy. <laughs> I would have killed him in the forest and left him with the trash. For sure. And also, he's a mouse wearing a sombrero. Fuck him. <laughs> I just picture all men and then Speedy Gonzalez this whole time. <laughs> so this brings us to August Van Camp. Well, August Van Camp had a thing for weasels. So much that he bought 12 acres of forest along the E19 motorway in Belgium. Just so he could let his weasels play in the forest chasing rabbits. But what he didn't realize was that, was that his land would turn into a party spot for local teenagers. Time after time, he would find trash littered about his property and every time he would call the police, but his complaints fell upon deaf ears. So Monday morning after the heist, August Van Camp brought his weasels to his property. And to his dismay, he found a giant plastic bag full of trash and the trash was strewn about the trees, including receipts for security systems purchased by none other than Leonardo Notobartolo. Envelopes with the name Diamond Center on them, bottles of wine, anti-pasta salad, and a half-eaten salami sandwich littered the ground. At the mention of Antwerp Diamond Center, the police were on the scene. After collecting the trash and testing the half-eaten salami sandwich for DNA, Leonardo Notobartolo was arrested as a criminal mastermind behind the Antwerp Diamond Heist. One of the greatest heists in history was foiled by a fucking half-eaten salami sandwich. And the lesson of this is, 
you never eat salami in a sandwich. You eat it on a charcuterie board <laughs> and you fucking eat all of the salami. The lesson is finish your meal. The lesson is you uh, so never leave a salami behind. So Norta Bartolo was sentenced to 10 years in prison. 10 years. That's it. Based on circumstantial evidence. And he never, <gasps> never. Oh, my God. I love him. Gave the name, the true names of his accomplices. I knew you were going to say that. I fucking love him. He should have probably told on Speedy, though. That guy sucks. Well, in the trash, and I'm, and I wasn't going to include this, but since you brought it up, in the trash, um, included like business cards from the accomplices. So, mm-hmm. three of them, Speedy, the genius, and the monster, were caught. The three of them were sentenced to five years each. That's it. I mean, I say that's it, but five years in prison. I mean, I couldn't do it. Thirty-five days in my house, and I'm going crazy. Five years in prison, I'd be, you know, my brains would be scrambled. But he never gave the fifth name of the accomplice. The King of Keys has never been caught. He would have gotten out anyways. Okay, so here's the twist in the story. He also claims that he wasn't the mastermind between the, be, behind the Antwerp Diamond Center. He says that he was approached by another dealer from inside the center, and he was actually set up that it was an, a multi-million dollar insurance fraud scheme. <gasps> That this dealer approached him and said, hey, want you to rob the vault. But then when they actually went to rob the vault, half of the diamonds were missing. So the police say that it was a $100 million heist. But Nota Bartolo says it was only $20 million heist. That the diamond dealers in on it had taken out their diamonds before. Oh, my God. So they could claim it on insurance. (gasps) Yeah. So who knows? But. Joshua Davis from Wired.com did an interview. It was the only interview that Nota Bartolo allowed while he was in prison. Mm-hmm. The only one. And he did an interview. And speaking of that, that is one of my sources for this episode. It mm-hmm. is a fucking fantastic article. I highly recommend that everybody read it. It's a article on Wired. And it is called The Untold Story of the World's Biggest Diamond Heist by Joshua Davis. And it was written in 2009. You have to read it. It's fantastic. It's amazing. One of a kind. Never been done before. Put it in a blender. Blend it. Drink it. Vomit it. Shit on it. Give birth to it. It's amazing. Okay, I'll do all of those. Let me write it down. (laughs) So, now, here's the thing. This is how fucking badass... No, to Bartolo is when Joshua Davis went to the prison where he was doing his time. He sat down and this is what no to Bartolo started his interview with. I may be a thief and a liar, but I'm going to tell you a true story. And most of the gold, the gems, the money, the diamonds that they stole from that vault have never been recovered. And we will probably never know what truly happened, the real story, if it was a setup, if it was, if he was the mastermind, I, I, I don't know. But it is one of the most fascinating true crime cases I have ever, ever researched. Two heists of the century, baby. Seriously. <laughs> oh my God. I love that story. I love Nota Bartolo, even though I can't say his name. <laughs> I hate Speedy. Love the genius. 
Oh, yeah. And he was a genius. And in that Wired article, there's like, it goes over the details of what uh, everyone I'm did. I'm totally going to read it. Do you want to name your other sources? Wikipedia. Okay. Uh, Wikipedia, I will, I didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't name it at the top, but. That's okay. Um, It was Wikipedia Antwerp Diamond Heist page. So, and that, and there is a little bit, see, here's the thing. So according to Wikipedia, they opened more, uh, safe deposit boxes Mm -hmm. than, uh, than they actually did. So I don't know if Wikipedia got their information from like police documents, but I went on the wired article and Norta Bartolo said they opened 109 security boxes. So I, I went with that. But I think there was about 189 total in the vault, and they got almost all of them. Just to think that if, I mean, those guys were so smart, and they did such, like, it's crazy that they even got in there, right? Mm -hmm. My guys were crafty, and it was kind of disgusting, because I had to go (laughs) through the sewers. And even that was impressive, but it didn't even have, it didn't have any of the uh, major alarms or security security systems implemented on the vault that my heist happened at. But with your heist, there was so much extra security. And just the fact that they even got in there is incredible to me. But then on top of that, to think that there might have been a diamond jeweler who was sitting there in the background, rubbing his hands together, like an Mm -hmm. evil villain saying, Mm -hmm. if they get caught or not, no matter what, I already have mine. Right. Which is like evil genius level shenanigans to add another layer even if norta bartolo was totally bullshitting mm-hmm. to add another layer on top of that and to say well actually it was this diamond dealer who came to me and it was an insurance scam i mean that just clouds the whole thing yeah it just and I didn't go into Norta Bartolo's past. The Wired article does, but he was a lifelong thief. I mean, he said himself, the first time he stole, he was six. His mom sent him to the store to get a gallon of milk. And when he went there, the milkman was asleep and he rifled through his drawers and stole eight. It wasn't in Italy. I don't know what it was in Italy, but they translated it to American money. It was $8 and he stole the gallon of milk. And he said from that point on, he knew he was meant to be a thief and he just escalated throughout his life. And then just, you know, I don't know you, you make the decision. Do you believe he was a mastermind or do you believe he was set up for insurance fraud? Okay. Controversial, but that story is adorable. (laughs) (laughs) I'm obsessed with this guy. I love how both of our stories were like, who was the head? Who was Mm -hmm. the brain of this Mm -hmm. situation? Maybe that's super common in heists. I don't know. I wish that Norta Bartolo and Bert had both escaped and lived together. Mm -hmm. And then just like swam through their money like Scrooge McDuck every day. Mm -hmm. I kind of think that your guy is too smart to be tricked by some guy doing an insurance fraud scheme. I agree. I think he's a little too clever for that. I think he would have smelled that a mile away. I think he probably just added that layer in so that when he got out of jail, if some of the jewels were recovered, he could say, that's all of it. I told you somebody else stole the other jewels, but really he could have had them somewhere else. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. If he 
fact said, well, actually, we were set up for insurance fraud and we only got $20 million because the dealers in on the scam took out their diamonds, you know, the day before. Mm-hmm. But the police thought they got $100 million. There, there would be $80 million out there that he could hide. Mm-hmm. But actually, none of it was ever found. Nothing, not even the $20 million. None mm-hmm. of it was ever recovered. And oh my God. he was let out on good behavior and his parole was to pay back. He never paid back the money he stole. So he went back in to serve the rest of his 10 years. Wow. Mm-hmm. And he was released, I believe in 2017. So I'm going to put up pictures of the vault and the door and I'll put up a picture of no to Bartolo. Um, I don't have a picture of the accomplices, um, but I will put up the pictures that I do have. I definitely have a picture of Speedy Gonzalez. Okay, where is all of the money, jewels, gold, diamonds from these heists? None of Uh, it was ever recovered. mm -mm. There was a small amount recovered from mine just when they picked up these like random low-level guys involved. But I mean, $100,000 out of a $10 million job is like Mm -hmm. nothing. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking when I was researching this episode, I was thinking, okay, how, how... easy is it to fence stolen diamonds turns out it's pretty fucking easy it's Mm. a lot easier than art famous art stolen which we'll do another episode on because i find that fascinating can you imagine stealing like 50 million worth of art just to hang it in your own house no because i think the whole point point of art is for people to enjoy it and to share it with people. Experience it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So if you're stealing this art just to hoard in your creepy underground fucking art museum, no. Yeah. So it's relatively easy to say that, say you stole a very valuable diamond necklace from a very wealthy woman or man, whatever. I don't know what you're into. You piece apart the diamond necklace and just like Norta Bartolo, he had a dealer's office in this. If he were to say, so this dealer's office was in the Antwerp Diamond Center in Belgium. If he stole a necklace in France, pieced it apart, brought it to his office, he could easily sell off those diamonds. So that's why my guys stole loose diamonds because they're basically untraceable unless they have a certificate. Mm-hmm. I think the same with gold bars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. These are such great stories. I love them. I'm obsessed with the heist. Me too. It's it, it's not a victimless crime, but it is a murderless crime. Heist, heist, baby. Oh, heist, heist, baby. <laughs> I you like did it. such a good job. I'm obsessed with your story. I'm so Thanks. happy you went last. We saved the best for last. I mean, it's pretty ingenious. Women's hairspray? Come mm-hmm. on. I have a crush on at least three of the guys involved in your heist. <laughs> I have a Side crush unseen. on all of them. <laughs> I mean, they describe the monster as a very tall, very muscular man who could pick locks. He was good with electronical systems. And I'm just like, oh, I'm sorry. Are you describing my dream man? Yes, you are. Played by Chris Hemsworth in the movie. Oh, my gosh. I always try to, uh, when I'm reading something, I always fill in the... The, the characters with like famous people. Me too. <laughs> well, I think you did a fantastic job and I think this is a great place to end. I think yes. we wrapped it up. I agree. So don't forget, love yourself. Lock your doors. 
and light some sage. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. And even though we think these criminals are sexy, we are in no way condoning theft. Except for stealing my heart. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing that's acceptable to steal is somebody's heart.